Kia good morning everybody once again. Here I am bringing what will almost be the last of our summer series uh, as we've been looking at different scriptures over the last few weeks. What I'm going to be doing today though is building on a talk that my daughter did last week when she looked at the life of Jacob, in particular Jacob and Esau and their relationship. Uh, I was on my way to preparing a completely different sort of message and then I just saw this huge hole in the story of Jacob and Esau that I want to take advantage of. This is no criticism of my daughter's preaching. I just saw this hole, this hole in the story, and I want to explain that to you. Um, I've been working with holes over the last few days, actually, well, about a week ago. Uh, I found a, a big hole in my, my inflatable boat. And um, the reason I've got this inflatable is that I take it down to Fiordland with me when I go, go hunting down there, and we get in the boat, hunt, then go down the river, set up camp, hunt, you get the idea. And so I saw that the, the floor was starting to come apart, the seam was starting to rip. And uh, on that basis, there was going to be as much water in the boat as outside of the boat, and that's not the plan when you're boating. And so I went off to a hardware shop, and I spoke to the experts there, and they said, look, this is how you fix your boat. You've got this acetone stuff, which sends you skyward if you're not careful. And you get all the old glue off, and then you put this new glue on, and you give it 10 minutes, and then you seal it together. And then you get your wife's hair dryer, and, uh, and then you run the heat over that, and it double cooks the glue, and we're sweet. So this is what I did. I spent a whole, nearly a whole day just getting this glue off. It's the hardest part of the job. Put the, old, put the new glue on, sealed it up, hair dryer, the whole bit. And uh, the family came around to the garage and they celebrated Dad's great skills and pats on the back, well done, Dad, all those good things. And so with that, the job was done and I took it outside because good rubber boats can live outside. Uh, and I, I put it out there and I came back three days later and all the seals had just opened up completely again, just this gummy, gluey mess. And I was like, you've got to be joking. You know, the wrong glue, obviously. Well, I use that illustration to say there are times when life comes apart at the seams. You like that? Is that true for you guys? There comes a time when life comes apart at the seams. And what I want to do today is talk and pick up the story of Jacob and Esau, where their lives came apart at the seams. And, and to do that, I just want to refresh the story, because it's such an important story that lives within the story in the silence of a 20-year story that we see in Esau's life. We followed Jacob's life last year, but a 20-year gap in Esau's life. And this is what I want to talk about. Here's the story. I'll put my back on you here. But uh, Jacob and Esau were twins. Uh, but with um, Esau being born first, he received the birthright as the first son. They were born. Esau was a, a hairy hunter, and Jacob was a scheming homeboy. Esau, Esau was uh, dad's favorite because he'd go out, get game, prepare it, and give it to his dad to eat. And, um, but Jacob was more of a homeboy, more of a mum's boy. And there came a time when he deceived his brother in a way that took advantage of his hunger, and he took, he took his birthright off his brother. We saw that last week. Okay, over a bowl of red lentil soup, he took, took the birthright off his brother. But mum was also in on this. She wanted her son, her favorite son, to receive the blessing of the firstborn. And so they developed this elaborate ruse where um, 
Jacob, dressed up like his brother, gave a meal to his father, and in doing so, deceived his father Isaac to think that he was the other brother. And in that moment, he prayed for him. And he prayed that he would be blessed. He prayed that he would inherit good things from God. And with that birthright and the blessing, he'd really just assumed everything that was good that his brother was going to inherit. He'd taken it all by deception. Well, I suppose you could really say all hell breaks loose in the family because Esau finds out what's happened and he wants to kill his brother. And so mum decides that uh, Jacob's got to leave town, so he goes. And in the journey there, he wrestles with God on the way out of town. He then goes and marries, marries his cousin, um, which is a bit weird, but that's the way it happened. Married his cousin, and then he returns with two wives. He wrestles with God, and then he's reconciled with his brother. But in this story, there's this part of the story that we hear nothing of. And that's Esau's side of the story. And this is what captures my attention. Because for this reconciliation to happen, something significant had to happen here. And when you look at the story, there is nothing redeemable about Jacob's actions that could have given Esau any room to forgive the guy, really. The guy was a deceiver. He deceived him out of his birthright and his blessing. These two things go together, birthright and blessing. So you sometimes think, oh gosh, you know, when somebody disappoints you, if you have enough time, you can sit there and think to yourself, oh, maybe it was a misunderstanding. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. There was absolutely, absolutely no doubt to give benefit to or of. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing good here to redeem. And so we need to look at the story and say, what is it that we can learn from the Esau account? What could we learn from his silence? Because Scripture speaks into this in ways right throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, about how vital and how critical human relationships are and how important forgiveness and rest restoration and reconciliation are to God. So let's just pick up on this story a bit and we'll just see this reconciliation moment occur. This is when they, they met together after 20 years. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. So here's this beautiful picture. We understand Jacob's side of the story because we've seen, we've heard, we understand he was nervous, very anxious about meeting his brother because he feared for his life. Everything about this story hinges upon Esau's reaction or response to Jacob turning up in his life again. 
I think it's really interesting the way that this is described here in this story about how there's this, this sort of move of the servants first and then the women and then Jacob comes later. I was, on Monday, I was down at Ratana at the celebrations there uh, and um, we got welcomed on in a porphyry, as you would expect. And a porphyry operates very much in a Maori tradition like this story here, really. You know, some people go in the front, the women always go in the front, and a woman starts calling people on to the marae, and then a woman responds to that call, and then everybody looks at each other, and then they take a seat, never turning your back on one another, and then the conversation begins, and people start to tell stories about mutual times of the past, the history, start talking about people in common. And the whole idea is to build a bridge of trust. And ultimately, a, uh, a piece of fern or piece of greenery is laid down um, by the, the visiting people who are saying, we come in peace. But when the guy, it's always a guy, goes out to pick that piece of fern off the ground to accept it, he does so in such a way that he never turns his back on these people. He walks up, picks it up, and then walks backwards. Why? Because this all could be a ruse, this all could be a deception. We could be really plotting and planning to take you out. But the whole thing is then built on trust, and then after that, you go line up and you hongi, you greet one another, and the, and the job's done well. There's opportunity for honesty and truth, there's opportunity for people to talk about history, even negative history. But the whole idea is to build a bridge of reconciliation, and essentially this is what we've seen here with Jacob and Esau. So, the question that we have in our lives when we talk about this whole process of reconciliation is, how do we respond when people disappoint us, people let us down, people have hurt us? Because it's quite simple, really. There comes a time when we, each of us, must face Esau the people we have deceived and let down, or the people who have deceived and let us down. And you can't get through this life, I don't think, without some form of relationship breakdown affecting you at some level, sometime in your life. And these are the things that run deep like rivers within your soul. And sometimes those rivers aren't perfectly clean because you hold resentment, you hold grudges, and that's called unforgiveness. I don't know about you, but over a lifetime, you have relationships that don't always work out as you would like or hope. And they really do some form of damage to your soul. I know for myself, there's a place where I go where I find these thoughts coming up. It's uh, when I do my lawns and I put my earmuffs on and I'm pushing my lawnmower or in some cases, sitting on my right on. And uh, woman, if you ever know, want to know what's going on through a man's mind at that time, nothing. And in that space, when you're just doing your run up and down, up and down, around the tree, nothing much going on really, that's the time when your soul speaks to you. And you find some of these things that you've, you've pushed down coming back to the surface. Anybody experience that? You know what I'm talking about? might be when you're going for a run, might be when you're having a long shower or swimming or something. 
But there's that place and space and time when these things surface and you're like, this is unfinished business that needs to be worked through. Now, I'm pretty confident that Esau would have had that experience day after day after day. What are you going to think about when you're out there tending the flocks? No radio to listen to in those days. No distractions. But you'd listen to the state of your soul on an ongoing basis. And what we find in Esau's life, and it's really, really a simple summary, what we find in Esau's life is that he made a deliberate choice to forgive his brother. There was nothing in there that was redeemable in respect to Jacob's behavior. Nothing. So when there is nothing to redeem, it is just simply an act of will. A choice. A determination to say, if there's any change here is going to happen, it comes back to me, and I have to do this as an act of my will because I know at the end of the day that this is right. It doesn't mean my feelings are in great shape, but I know that this is the right thing to do. And so we look at this piece of Scripture and we don't find in it an excuse to give ourselves when it comes to broken relationships. Because when we look at it, we go, is there any reason, apart from being blood brothers, is there any reason why Esau should forgive Jacob? No, absolutely none. This guy was a dirty, rotten toad. Flogged everything he could off him, did a runner, didn't account for his uh, behavior at all. There was nothing. So the act of will that Esau brings ends up in that divine category. This is the work of God in his life. And I want to bring us into the New Testament now because Jesus has a lot to say about this. In fact, the things he has to say about forgiveness will surprise us if you haven't already done the work of looking at this. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus is pointing forward and back at the same time. He's talking about forgiveness being some of the finest acts that he has within the tradition of Judaism. And so these things are not uncommon. These stories aren't uncommon to the people. But let's see what Jesus has to say when he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We're talking here about an upside-down kingdom, aren't we? Because the way the world works is that when someone gets one over you, you get it back. Or at least create indifference where you just don't care. Why should I care for that person who's hurt me or hurt others? All of a sudden, we're talking about a completely different set of values that aren't from this world. They are from God. Jesus is asking us to look at those around us who may do us harm and treat them as those whom we love. That's not easy, is it? It's not easy. So don't pretend it is. We need to talk about this more. This is the hard stuff. This is the tough stuff. And, and it gets even tougher. Let me, let me show you this next scripture. It comes from Matthew Gospel, chapter 6. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hello? I thought we're saved by grace. Yet we are. Absolutely. But grace, when grace is in your life, there is evidence that that's at work. It's that old story of faith and deeds. You know, if you've got faith, then your actions will show it. If your actions don't show anything that looks like faith, then maybe your faith isn't faith at all. And the reason why this forgiveness is such a really big deal to Jesus, these are Jesus' words. The reason why it's such a big deal for Jesus is because the very centerpiece of the whole story of salvation is that he is going to take our sins and forgive our sins by dying on a cross. So therefore, he says, the only debt outstanding that you owe me is to love one another. Okay? The only thing that we have that we can give to Jesus by way of response is to love others. And that includes those who may have hurt us or harmed us. And that for all of us, that for every one of us, is a really big challenge. John says, John, this is uh, in 1 John chapter 1, says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. It's, it's, it's a, a profound impact that comes upon your life when there is unforgiveness there. An enormous impact. John talks about it as being like one who stumbles around in the darkness. Now, we all know what that's like, don't we? We stumble, we trip over things, we run into things, and, and we lose our way, we get disorientated. And the reason why we get disorientated is this. Say in my life right now, I've got a, a circle of relationships all the way around me, 360 degrees. There's family and friends and folks from church and folks from, that I meet at the gym or people that I go out hunting with and, and just a whole myriad of relationships. We've got all of these people that you're the same, right? When life goes badly in one area, the overwhelming impact that that has on your life disturbs all the other relationships. And you'll find yourself being manipulated emotionally by this broken down relationship here. It'll be the the place you don't go to, the people you don't talk to, the space that has hurt so much in the past that you won't want to go there and experience that pain again. I know people who have had really, really bad childhoods and they're not going to have children because they'd hate to think that they could do that to their own kids. Does that make sense? So therefore, because of the brokenness and the lack of reconciliation in that part of their family life, that will affect their life in a way that means that they may choose not to have children. Yeah? So all of us have these things going on in our lives. But when there is pain and unforgiveness, these things will cause us to move in directions that we weren't necessarily called to. And we find ourselves zigzagging our way through life from one broken, bad relationship maybe to another. 
because we have high expectations that people will let us down. And we get to the stage where if people let us down, well, I'm not going to be hurt anymore, so I'll be the one who actually hits first. And that leads to isolation and brokenness and separation. We're told when we take communion that relationships are really important. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a nice way of saying died. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Again, really heavy statements, aren't they? About judgment. And they all come back to our relationships with one another. And the final sentence there talks about discipline. The Lord loves us enough to give us what? A conscience. The Lord loves us enough to actually have the ability to be able to bring up the past and work through that in a way that means you won't be impeded on your way forward. Uh, just on Friday, I went to the dentist, you know, annual checkup. It's the thing we all love to do. Who loves going to the dentist? You do. Are you dentists? Oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, that ruins the rest of the jokes I was going to say. Good? Yeah, well, I went to the dentist, and he had a look. And um, nice chap. Never charges too much. Um, Oh, you don't know him? No, (laughs) figures. Um, No, anyway, he had a look, and he goes, uh, oh, that all looks all right to me. And uh, he says, but hold on, I'll take a couple of x-rays. And I'm like... Why? Doesn't hurt. Teeth aren't falling out. Why do you want to look at what's underneath? This is what I was thinking to myself. I was also thinking x-rays, yeah, that'll cost more. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, he took some x-rays. Five minutes later, no problem. Nothing, Nothing wrong underneath the teeth as well. But this scripture that we've just read at the moment about taking communion is actually asking us to look underneath. You see, when we're here at that most intimate moment, that most sacred moment, when we're discerning the body of Christ, taking the body and blood of Christ in that way of communion, when we're stopping at that time, Paul tells us that, hey, this is the time when you've got to deal with what's the most important thing in your life. And that is your relationships with others. How is it that you are getting on with people? And, and when we stop and we take that time to look, we're actually honoring God with the honesty that we bring to that event. We're saying, God, I take this seriously. I take this opportunity to be near you in this intimate way through communion. I'm taking this seriously. I'm, I want to have some X-ray time. X-ray time. Because that's where our life exists. Our true life exists in that relationship with God. 
And this is what Jesus is asking us to do, is to stop and consider our relationships and how is it that we're doing when it comes to bring reconciliation, putting things in place that can heal past hurts, or ensuring that we're not doing any more damage as we move, move on. I know for, uh, for Michaela and I as, as parents, um, there, there are times when we look back and we go, you know, we try to get the kids to see how it is that they're hurting one another and, you know, different arguments that the kids would have. And I remember one time our two girls were having a really bad day and uh, nothing was going right between them. We said, that's it. We're going to sort you out. So we got them sitting on the couch and we said, you've got to hold hands for 10 minutes. We still hear about it now. You know, we're talking nearly 20 years on from that moment. They still talk about it like we're the worst parents in the world. And we probably were. And uh, they just holding hands. And, and Michaela and I go down the hallway and <laughs> laugh our heads off, come back in. You still holding hands? Yep, yep. We can't force good behaviours upon people. And that's what it was, bad parenting, to be quite honest. But we can try to help them understand that their life is under God's leadership and they have to get it right. My, um, my brother-in-law, Greg, and his, his wife, Donna, uh, were travelling back from Auckland a few years ago with their kids in the car and their, their, their son and daughter, and they were around about seven and eight years old, and they were fighting like cats and dogs in the back of the car. And as they were going down the motorway just under the Bombay Hills, um, this police car came up behind them, put the red light on, pulled them over. So Greg gets out of the car and he gets told that um, he's got a tail light out. He goes, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. So he chats to the policeman for a few minutes. He gets back in the car and uh, the kids are saying, Dad, Dad, what was all that about? And he said, well, the policeman saw you two fighting in the back of the car. <laughs> I spent five minutes telling them that you're going to be good, otherwise he was going to put you in jail. <laughs> they were good for the rest of the trip, apparently, <laughs> looking out the window for police cars. <clears throat> Probably lost the whole, the whole meaning of this talk this morning by telling those stories. But you see... There's, a, there's two ways of, of, of thinking, and we, we give ourselves some f form of um, <clears throat> forgiveness when we don't actually act upon what God might be saying about fixing relationships. Hebrew thinking and Greek thinking are very different. I've explained this some years ago, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, Greek thinking goes like this. If you say to yourself, I believe that running will get you fitter. If you don't run, you don't really believe it. That's what the, the Greeks would say. Whereas the, sorry, that's what the Hebrews would say. The Greeks would say, if you think something, you believe it. Hebrews are saying, if you do something, you believe it. Anything else is not believed. Does that make sense? So when it comes to this Greek thinking that we have that is predominantly within our society now, we can easily say to ourselves, look, I've got good intentions towards somebody and one day I will fix up that relationship. God is saying, you have to get beyond good intentions. 
and actually put in place a plan that will help you reconcile things in a way that brings the relationship back to the place that's the best it can possibly be as much as it is determined by you. Not everything is going to be perfect, is it? What I want to finish with is, though, is just another side to this whole story. When we come back and we look at Esau, and we see that he made a deliberate choice to forgive his brother when his brother had done nothing to deserve it, we see that he set in motion something in his family that was picked up by the next generation. You see, after Esau forgave his brother Jacob, Jacob, as we know, had his name changed to Israel. Israel went on with his wives and concubines and had 12 children. The youngest one, Joseph, was born to his favorite wife, Rachel, and um, that favorite son, we remember, was given that coat of many colors because his father celebrated him. And uh, he was a real, he was really quite a cheeky young brat, to be quite honest, but pretentious about the way he told his brothers that they would all bow down before him one day. Most of you will know this story. And so the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. They thought he was lost forever. But God had his hand upon him, and he raised up this young man, Joseph, to be the prime minister of Egypt. And when the famine came, the other brothers, who had long, 20 years ago, left him, they came to Egypt and they appealed to the prime minister for mercy, for some food. They didn't realize that this was their little brother who they were now appealing to. He could easily, at the click of his fingers, had them all wiped out for what they had done to him. But in the family story, in the family story, there's a story of powerful forgiveness of Uncle Esau, how he forgave his father Jacob. And so this story, just one generation later, had a huge impact upon the whole biblical story because those families ended up staying in Egypt under the leadership of the youngest brother and they became the 12 tribes of Israel that for 400 years stayed there in Egypt until God released them. So when we look at our own stories, and we think of forgiveness, we think of broken relationships with siblings or parents or grandparents or aunties and uncles. We know that they have a huge bearing upon our lives because they're the places we don't go, literally don't go to that family event or maybe that work event because that person hurt you. But these affect us in generational ways. These affect families in ways that could mean families just get separated and no one ultimately knew, knew why this ever happened, but that just, it's just the way it is. And yet for Jesus, he says, the most important thing for you to do is to be working hard at your relationships to ensure that they're not broken. And as much as it is up to you, because you can't, can't control both sides of the story, but as much as it is up to you, you're done and you're doing your best to try to put those relationships right. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. But what we've explored today through the silence, this 20-year silence of Esau's life, is a, a decision-making process that says, I will be committed, even if I don't feel that this person has owed anything, I will be committed to reconciliation. Because of all the things in this world 
our relationships with one another are the most important thing to God. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us. Lord, as we see the gaps in Scripture, in this case, Esau's life, we are reminded that we too can find ourselves in this story. Maybe relationships that go way back and maybe a, a phone call or an email and, or maybe a coffee with somebody who you haven't seen for a while and you know that there's been some difficulties there. Lord, we can't change the world on this one. We're not complete control of these relationships, but we know that everything is possible with you. What seems impossible is exactly where you live. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, you would help us in these relationships, that there can be some rebuilding of trust, that we would have courage to raise up things that may have hurt in the past, that where it comes to it, Lord, we can look at it and say, hey, these relationships are important to you, and so therefore they're important to us. And so we, we just open ourselves up, Lord, to, to you, for this is a divine work in, in some places. Only you, God, can make these things happen. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.